0: Good morning I bring my water bottle up because we're going to start by reading about seventy verses um, well I'm not joking um, so uh, I, I picked there's some there's themes across these two chapters as we're looking at one day in the life of Abraham and lot and and I thought it would be good if we if we looked at these two chapters together in conjunction rather than separating them. So, um, we're going to start in Genesis chapter 18 and read through to the end of Genesis chapter 19. Um, But what a privilege that we can, even over a long period of time, hear from God's Word to us. Genesis chapter 18, page 14 in your ESV Pew Bible. And the, and the Lord appeared to him by the oaks of Mamre as he sat at the door of his tent in the heat of the day. He lifted his eyes and looked, and behold, three men were standing in front of him. When he saw them, he ran from the tent door to meet them and bowed himself to the earth and said, O Lord, if I have found favor in your sight, do not pass by your servant. Let a little water be brought and wash your feet and rest yourselves under the tree while I bring a morsel of bread, that you may refresh yourselves, and after that you may pass on, since you have come to your servant. So they said, Do as you have said. And Abraham went quickly into the tent to Sarah and said, Quick, three seahs of fine flour, knead it and make cakes. And Abraham ran to the herd and took a calf tender and good and gave it to a young man who prepared it quickly. Then he took curds and milk and the calf that he had prepared and set it before them, and he stood by them under the tree while they ate. They said to him, "'Where is Sarah, your wife?' And he said, "'She is in the tent.' The Lord said, "'I will surely return to you about this time next year, and Sarah, your wife, shall have a son.' And Sarah was listening at the tent door behind him. Now Abraham and Sarah were old, advanced in years." The way of women had ceased to be with Sarah. So Sarah laughed to herself, saying, "'After I am worn out and my Lord is old, shall I have pleasure?' The Lord said to Abraham, "'Why did Sarah laugh and say, "'Shall I indeed indeed bear a child now that I am old? "'Is anything too hard for the Lord? "'The appointed time I will return to you about this time next year, "'and Sarah will have a son.'" But Sarah denied it, saying, "I did not laugh, for she was afraid." And he said, "No, but you did laugh." And the men set out from there, and they looked down towards Sodom. And Abraham went with them to set them on their way. The Lord said, "Shall I hide from Abraham what I am about to do, seeing that Abraham surely, uh, surely shall surely become?" a great and mighty nation, and all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him. For I have chosen him that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice so that the Lord may bring Abraham what he has promised him. Then the Lord said, "Because the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is great, and their sin is very grave, I will go down to see whether they have done altogether according to the outcry that has come to me, and if not, I will know. So the men turned from there and went towards Sodom, but Abraham stood still stood before the Lord. Then Abraham drew near and said. Will you indeed sweep away the righteous with the wicked? Suppose there are fifty righteous within the city. Will you then sweep away the place and not spare it for the fifty righteous who are in it? Far be it from you to do such a thing, to put the righteous to death with the wicked so that the righteous fare as the wicked. Far be from you. Shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? The Lord said, If I find at Sodom 50 righteous in the city, I will spare the whole place for their sake. Abraham answered and said, Behold, I have undertaken to speak to the Lord. I am but dust and ashes. Suppose you destroy the whole city for lack of five. And he said, I will not destroy the city if I find 45 there. Again he spoke to him and said, Suppose there are 40 are found there. He answered, For the sake of forty, I will not do it. Then he said, oh, oh, let not the Lord be angry, and I will speak. Suppose thirty are found there. He answered, I will not do it if I find thirty there. He said, Behold, I have undertaken to speak to the Lord. Suppose twenty are found there. He answered, For the sake of twenty, I will not destroy it. And he said, Oh, let not the Lord be angry, and I will speak again. But this once, suppose ten, Are found there. He answered, For the sake of ten, I will not destroy it. And the Lord went his way when he had finished speaking to Abraham, and Abraham returned to his place. The two angels came to Sodom in the evening, and Lot was sitting in the gate of Sodom. When Lot saw them, he rose to meet them and bowed himself with his face to the earth and said, My lords, please turn aside to your servants' house and spend the night and wash your feet, then you may rise up early and go on your way. They said, No, we will spend the night in the town square. But he pressed them strongly, so they turned aside to him and entered his house. And he made them a feast and baked unleavened bread, and they ate. But before they lay down, the men of the city, the men of Sodom, both young and old, all the people to the last man surrounded the house, and they called to Lot, Where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out to us that we may know them. Lot went out to the men at the entrance, shut the door after him and said, I beg you, my brothers, do not act so wickedly. Behold, I have two daughters who have not yet known any man. Let me bring them out to you and do to them as you please. Only do, not, only do nothing to these men, for they have come under the shelter of my roof. But they said, Stand back. And they said, This Get out of this place, for the Lord is about to destroy the city. But he seemed to his sons-in-law to be jesting. As morning dawned, the angels urged Lot, saying, Up, take your wife and your two daughters who are here, lest you be swept, up, swept away in the punishment of the city. But he lingered. So the men seized him and his wife and his two daughters by the hand, The Lord being merciful to him, and they brought him out and set him outside the city. And as they brought them out, one said, "'Escape for your life. Do not look back or stop anywhere in the valley. Escape to the hills, lest you be swept away.' And Lot said to them, "'Oh no, my lords, behold, your servant has found favor in your sight.' And you have shown me great kindness in saving my life, but I cannot escape to the hills, lest the disaster overtake me and I die. Behold, this city is near enough to flee to, and it is a little one. Let me escape there. Is it not a little one? And my life will be saved. He said to him, Behold, I grant you this favor also, that I will not overthrow the city of which you have spoken." "'Escape there quickly, for I can do nothing "'till you arrive there.' "'Therefore the name of the city was called Zoar.' "'The sun had risen on the earth "'when Lot came to Zoar. "'Then the Lord rained on Sodom and Gomorrah "'sulfur and fire from the Lord out of heaven. "'And he overthrew those cities "'and all the valley "'and all the inhabitants of the cities "'and what grew on the ground. "'But Lot's wife behind him looked back And she became a pillar of salt. And Abraham went early in the morning to the place where he had stood before the Lord. And he looked down towards Sodom and Gomorrah and toward all the land of the valley. And he looked and behold, the smoke of the land went up like the smoke of a furnace. So it was that when God destroyed the cities of the valley, God remembered Abraham and sent Lot out of the midst of the overthrow, and he overthrew the cities in which Lot had lived. Now Lot went up out of Zoar and lived in the hills with his two daughters, for he was afraid to live in Zoar. So he lived in a cave with his two daughters. And the firstborn said to the younger, Our father is old, and there is not a man on earth to come into us after the manner of all the earth." Come, let us make our father drink wine and we will lie with him that we may preserve offspring from our father. So they made their father drink wine that night and the firstborn went in and lay with her father. He did not know when she lay down or when she arose. The next day the firstborn said to the younger, Behold, I lay last night with my father. Let us make him drink wine tonight also. The younger also bore a son and called his name Ben-Ami. He is the father of the Ammonites to this day. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. Father, there is much said in here. There is much for us to uncover and unearth. And we plead that you would help us this morning as we look at great promise and great disaster mixed together. So, Father, help us to see truth and reality in these things, in our own lives, that the light of Christ would reign supremely in us this day. For we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Well, as you know, in the last number of weeks, we, we've sort of been looking chapter by chapter at the life of Abraham, and we've sort of been zeroing in on these little incidences that are taking place, and there are these longer gaps of 13 years, 11 years, in between the spaces. Uh, these, these specific incidences and, and episodes have sort of carried us along through the text. But today we're going to cover more ground, as you can obviously tell, uh, as we look at really what is a snapshot of a day. A day in the life of Abraham and a day in the life of Lot. And this is a day unlike any other in so many ways. A day on which we have been waiting since Genesis chapter 13. And in that chapter, two things are said alongside each other. uh, uh, Two questions that are raised. The first, if you'll remember, is when Lot moves towards Sodom. Which we are told in the text, in parenthetical reference, that God had not yet destroyed Sodom. And that little line is placed there as a clue for the reader to begin to ask when, how, and why will Sodom and Gomorrah be destroyed? Immediately following that is the promise that God gives to Abraham that he will inherit the land and that his seed, uh, from his seed, the, the, the nations will be blessed. And yet, Sodom still stands, and the promised seed has yet to arrive. So, how are these two promises going to be fulfilled? It's the tension that's been carrying us through this arc of this narrative. How is God going to work? And within the space of 24 hours, These two central questions that have come to the front of our minds as we have been readers of Abraham's story are answered in a dramatic and an extraordinary way. What will happen to Lot is one question, and how will God keep his promise to Abraham is another question. And the story unfolds in these two chapters in this remarkable drama that we've just read. And they really boil down to four acts, four acts or scenes, um, as if this was a a play or a, a performance of some sort. And they all belong together. But the story is, of course, told progressively in a series of acts in this one single drama and these are what we are looking at this morning. Act 1, we read about in the first 15 verses, uh, Genesis chapter 18, 1 through 15. Act 1 describes the, the visitation of the Lord. It's almost a humorous picture here of Abraham as he's enjoying his afternoon nap and presumably Sarah is in the tent resting as well. I mean, what would you do if you were 90 and 100 years old on a hot day? You're... You're probably sleeping, and you have no children to take care of. Uh, but Abraham notices that there are people standing over him, and, and so he, he's startled, and he, he sort of jumps up, and he greets them, and he very quickly realizes that they are no ordinary guests or visitors. But they mysteriously represent the presence of God, Jehovah, Jehovah. El Shaddai, the God who has made covenant with Abraham. And just as any good southern family would do, they quickly make preparations and meal uh, uh, for their guests. They are wanting to show hospitality to these unexpected guests. And the Lord begins to show Abraham that he will come, he has come for more than just the one reason he's come for two reasons the first reason is that he's here to show abraham how he is going to keep his covenant promise to him and he reveals his identity uh, to abraham in obvious ways First, he reveals his omnipotence. Verse 10, I will surely return to you about this time next year, and Sarah, your wife, shall have a son. So this visitor has claims to divine power. He's not just merely a a prophet who can foresee the future, but he has divine omnipotence. He He is the Lord, the giver of life. It's his visitation on the way back That will actually bring forth the child, not just saying she will have a son. And he further reveals his divine identity by disclosing his divine omniscience. There is Sarah, and the text says that she was laughing within herself at this idea. Now, the visitor cannot see her, he cannot hear her, but he knows that behind the tent there is someone laughing at the promise he has made, that he's given. And so he rebukes that laughter with the question, Is anything too hard for the Lord? Is anything too hard for the Lord? A, a-, a question that rebukes Sarah in her unbelieving laughter on the one hand, and on the other hand, it encourages Abraham and Sarah together. It's as if he were to say, if you overhear me behind the tent, Sarah, saying that this will happen, then behind the tent, I also want you to hear me saying There is nothing too difficult. There is nothing too hard for the Lord. And I want you to get my promises, and I want you to get my uh, provision, and I want you to get my future into perspective. Now, it's no doubt that Abraham would have had this same thought many times since the promise was made. The thought that uh, he's too old that they are beyond the years of being able to conceive and have a child. It's one thing to say that your seed will bring blessing to the nations of the world. It's it's altogether a different thing for God to fulfill that promise. And God now comes to Abraham as his covenant friend, as his covenant Lord, and says, I am going to keep that promise. Promise despite all the obstacles and all of the difficulties that are in you. And despite all of the the obstacles and all of the difficulties that come until I fulfill that promise in the sending of the Lord Jesus Christ, your true seed. Obstacle after obstacle will get in my way. But there is nothing too hard for the Lord. Nothing too hard for the Lord. And in a sense, the whole Bible from Genesis chapter 18 all the way through to the book of Revelation, it's simply a succession of cheerleaders standing by praising God and saying, nothing is too hard for him. Nothing is too hard for him. Every single promise he has made to his people, that promise has been kept. Now, there's an obvious application to that, not just for Abraham, but for you as well. Has God made a promise to you that is more difficult for him to keep than to keep this promise, this promise that he made to Abraham? The promise that through his seed, the nations of the earth would be blessed cost God, the life and the blood of His own Son. It it, it was that difficult. And if He has kept this promise, then all the unbelief in my heart, in your heart, needs to bow before this, this divinely given question, is anything too hard for me? Is anything too hard for me? Yes, you have obstacles. Yes, there are challenges. Yes, there are difficulties. When you are looking, where are you looking for a solution? Sarah is looking for the solution to the obstacles and the difficulties from her own natural sort of sphere of powers and gifts. So she comes up with Hagar. So she comes up with some other solution. So she comes up with that God can't do this. And God says, the answer to this question, is there anything too hard for the Lord, does not come in what you are able to do in moving forward God's promises, but in the faithfulness, in the power and the omniscience of God who has given these promises. And so you are able to, to trust Him absolutely, absolutely. So the visitation of the Lord, act one of the drama, is here to teach us that we can trust the Lord because there is nothing, there is nothing that is too hard for Him, nothing too hard for Him. Well, act two we find in verses 16 through 33 of chapter 18. This goes on to describe the intercession of Abraham. The the intercession of Abraham comes up because the Lord has appeared for a second reason. Not only to inform him that how he will keep his promise to Abraham, but it's also to inform uh, what he's going to do with these cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. And we are told in clear language in verse 20 then the Lord said, Because the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is great and their sin very grave, I will go down to see whether they have done altogether according to the outcry that has come to me. And if not, I will know. And in that context, there is a little divine debate. Should I hide this from Abraham or should I tell him? And because Abraham, as we learn later on in the book of Chronicles and in Isaiah, is regarded as a friend of God. The Lord says, shall I hide from Abraham what I am about to do? And so he begins to describe what he is about to do. How he is about to pour out his holy, righteous judgment upon these cities that have so resolutely resisted Him, rejected Him, even though one of the covenant community and family live within its walls. There is this outcry that comes to the Lord, like, like the cry that comes from the earth in, in Genesis chapter 4, when it talks about the blood of Abel crying out to God, that he would exercise justice and his righteousness throughout the earth. So similarly, in the sin of, of, of Sodom and Gomorrah, it, it has so polluted the world Order that the very world order seems to groan in in the ears of God. How long will you tolerate this indignity? How long will you tolerate this immorality? In which appears later on, not only in the older men, but in older men who have taught younger men to go their way Blunt, deliberately, openly, viciously against the purposes of God. And so he has come down as he came down in the days of Noah. And he is going to destroy the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. But do you notice the response of Abraham? Go for it. Yes. No. They deserve it, Lord. Strike them down. No, he comes conscious of his own sinfulness and inadequacy. The judgment of God upon others should make us, even those of us who believe, conscious of our own sinfulness, so that we begin to engage in intercession for the mercy of God. And what follows is one of the most poignant scenes in the whole of the Old Testament, as Abraham engages in extended intercession, dialogue, even debate with God. I mean, could you hear the pleading as we were reading through that? God, he says, if there were were 50, if there are 50, I will spare it. God, if there are 45 pleading, begging, arguing with God, the constant theme here is, oh God, have mercy according to who you are. Till eventually he says, oh God, would you spare it if there's only ten? What if there's ten? And I think Abraham hears in the tone of the response that there are not ten in the city. And so the Lord walks away and Abraham stops his intercession, the, the, the intercession of the one man in the whole of the Bible who is referred to as the friend of God. That his ongoing, his powerful intercession was not able to save even ten in the city of Sodom, cities of Sodom and Gomorrah from the awful judgment of God. That point is astonishing for this reason. In a passage later on in the book of Ezekiel in chapter 16, Ezekiel describes Jerusalem, the people of God, as having sunk lower. They are worse than the city of Sodom. But he says, although they have sunk lower than Sodom, I am going to save them. How can that be? How, when Abraham has the title of the friend of God, when his intercession cannot save Sodom and Gomorrah, how then can God promise that in his righteousness, he is going to save his own people, even though they sink lower than Sodom? The answer, of course is that while Abraham's intercession cannot atone for the sins of Sodom and Gomorrah, even though he is the friend of God, Christ's intercession can atone for the sins of his people because he is the Son of God. Abraham cannot intercede for the sins of Sodom and save them because Abraham cannot bear the judgment of God on those cities. He he can't. But Jesus Christ can save those who have sunk lower than Sodom because he has borne the divine judgment and penalty of their sin. It was only sulfur and fire that falls on Sodom and Gomorrah. It was the totality of the wrath of God that fell undiluted on the Son of God on the cross at Calvary. So, Not only does this passage point us as Christian believers as an assurance that God is able to keep His promise, but Abraham's intercessory dialogue with God points us beyond what Abraham can do to what our great Savior and intercessor, the Lord Jesus Christ, alone is able to do for His people. It's fascinating, isn't it, that this is still just one day in the life of Abraham and Lot. And yet we're not quite finished. Because Act 3 we read about in in chapter 19, verses 1 through 29, and it brings us to the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. The angelic vision takes place, the visitation takes place, and they discover... uh, uh, That indeed the city of Sodom is profoundly perverted as the cry has come to heaven suggested. And they find themselves, the visitors, think of this, visitors from the city of God to the city of Sodom. And they are victims of the intended mob rape of a homosexual nature. And you could see as we as we read through this how the community character of Sodom is it's underlined. It, 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 as we said earlier, it's not just the old men, but the younger men who followed the older men's example with this passion and lust for the bodies of these two visitors. And then God comes in, in this terrible, devastating judgment. Why is this so serious? It's so serious because, as Paul makes clear at the end of Romans chapter 1, verses 18 and following, when a society begins to disintegrate, it begins to disintegrate first at the margins, at the ends, at the fringe. Then, by approving at the very center of human existence, patterns and lifestyles of human behavior that are not just explicit against the God, uh, the laws of the Old Testament, uh, which of course overt homosexual behavior is, but this also absolutely and radically is contrary to the way in which God has constituted human nature. So it's not just about disobedience to to worship of God. It's that they the breakdown of the very fabric of of family of life of reproduction has completely taken place here. That's why in both the eyes of the Old Testament and the New Testament, it is always the apex of human sinfulness and rebellion against God. And it is so profoundly and ultimately self-destruction. And so God's holy judgment falls upon the cities of the plain and does so in language that echoes language we have seen before in the language of the great flood. The sulfur rains down on the cities and, and, and over and over in the story of Noah and the watery judgment and the story of Sodom and the fiery judgment, this language of bringing to ruin, bringing to destruction, It's one of the pictures of of the Bible in the Bible of God's holy judgment against human sin. It's a reminder to us of what ultimately lies at the end. What's astonishing is when people say, "Yes, that's that was Old Testament God, but this is not New Testament." And yet Jesus' own words in to the cities of Capernaum and Bethsaida in his own day were it will be worse for you on the day of judgment than it was for sodom let's translate this an individual a community a nation that has had clear evidence of the presence of God and the power of Jesus Christ, the truth of His Word, indications of His saving and transforming grace, and then proceeds as an individual or as a community or as a nation to then reject Jesus Christ, will receive greater judgment on the day of judgment than Sodom and Gomorrah did on the day of its visitation. There are plenty of people that including ourselves, that that can look on this story of Sodom and Gomorrah with horror and and still think that not trusting in in Jesus Christ, that it's just an incidental, it's a light thing. It's not as serious as something else. Let me put it this way. It is far more serious than homosexual activity. Homosexual activity can be forgiven when repented of. Christ died for sinners. But the ongoing rejection of Jesus Christ is the ongoing refusal of all sin. And it exposes us to terrible judgment. No matter how uncomfortable it is for us to look at these two chapters, a day in the life of Abraham, a day in the life of Lot, it has something to say to us today as a nation. It has something to say to us today as a church, does it not? And yet we have not reached the bottom of the story. I mean, how could that be? This is so terrible, so disastrous. The lowest point comes for us in Act 4. And this is chapter 19, verses 30 through 38. The story begins with the visitation of the Lord. It continues with the intercession of Abraham. It comes to a climax at the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. And it comes to a tragic end in the desolation of Lot's family. There's this downward spiral that of course, many of us know about in Lot's story. it starts in chapter 13 of Genesis, about him just facing the cities of, of Sodom. And then soon he's at the city uh, at the outskirts, and then he's in the city. and then he's friends with people in the city. And then it appears in chapter 19 as he himself is in government in the city as they meet at the city gate. And yet, fascinatingly, the New Testament speaks of this in 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 6, about righteous Lot tormenting his righteous soul over their lawless deeds that he saw and heard. And there's the tragedy. A righteous man who has made a wrong choice experiencing the consequences of that wrong choice with a soul that is agitated and churned up because he is living in an ungodly place and he doesn't know what to do and nor does he have the power to do anything any longer. That is the real tragedy of Lot's life. That, that, that having made a, a, a wrong choice, he's found himself powerless to make any other choice. He, he, he's, it's like he's stuck. He can't make anything but more bad choices, it seems. Well, quite on purpose, these two stories are told, the story of Abraham and the story of Lot, and you begin to see how they contrast with one another. You notice even the, the hospitality, they're trying to be hospitable, but the, the responses are very different, particularly in the home and family life. In a sense, you see the difference between a Christian home and family life and an ungodly home and family life. And, and, and please don't hear me saying it. one is whitewashed, that it's a fake one is genuine and even has moments of, 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 of doubt as we see in the laughter of Sarah. But one is, is completely unresponsive and careless. And what happens down through... Their generations. Remember how God speaks to Abraham. Should I hide from Abraham what I'm about to do? Chapter 18, verse 19. For I have chosen him that he may command his children and his whole household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice so that the Lord may bring to Abraham what he has promised him. That that the nations will be blessed through this. That, That his family will be the people of God. And Abraham's failure for Abraham's family for, for all of their failures that we're gonna read about through the rest of the book of Genesis and really the rest of Scripture. But they breathe in the life of godliness that Abraham has breathed out. His his choices have consequences that will impact his children, his grandchildren, his great-grandchildren. And Lot's choice similarly will have consequences that influenced his family. His sons-in-law, chapter 19, verse 14. Up, get out of this place, for the Lord is about to destroy the city. And then these terrible words. But he seemed to his sons-in-law to be jesting. Why do they laugh? Why do they think he is joking? Because there was nothing about Lot or his life that indicated to them that he cared anything about their soul. That he cared anything about them. They couldn't believe what he was saying about what God was about to do. Because he hadn't lived, he hadn't acted, he hadn't spoken anything in the way a godly man should have. He's done nothing. And it's not only the distant relations of of the sons-in-law. But this happens to hit nearer to home. We we, we read his wife leaves with him. The the sons-in-law didn't come with him because they didn't believe God's word. His wife left with him believing God's word, but she still retains her attachments to Sodom. She disobeys the word of the angel and she looks back and stops and is overcome with the cloud of sulfur. And just like the people in Pompeii, she becomes frozen in history. When she becomes frozen between these words, Lot's wife looked back and became a pillar of salt. Imagine that. That the choice that Lot made had consequences for the woman who married him. She was behaving now in the crisis the way that he had behaved all the way through. He is responsible for her looking back. He's as responsible for her looking back as he was for her being in Sodom in the first place. He's the family leader. He's led them to outside the gates of Sodom. He has led them to inside the gates of Sodom. He has led them to, to, to where they are at this point. And then at the tail end, though this stretches beyond the day in the life of Abraham and Lot, But it puts a period on the end of the story as the daughters come with Lot out of Sodom but cannot get Sodom out of themselves because of Lot's wrong choices, the consequences carry on. And tragically, Lot himself becomes involved unwillingly in the very thing that he was going to get the sodomites to do with his own daughters. And I'm sure there's a question that has been raised in your mind either at this point here or previous times in your study of Scripture, and the question is, was Lot saved Was he saved eternally? Was he in heaven? Will we find him there? He's certainly not in Hebrews 11. We we want to know. But you see, there is no answer to that question given to us. Here's a man who went on this terrible spiritual spiral down from a major choice that he made in life. And whether it ended spiritually or just physically in disaster, it ended in disaster. And his spiritual condition is shrouded in mystery. Isn't that interesting? It wasn't something we can say, you know, Lot made a decision for the Lord uh, 40 years ago. Now, the decision of my will can be uh, the decision of a passing moment. The Lord does not call me to make a, a decision uh, uh, of my life, of my will, that then has no bearing on the rest of my life. It's not a, a, a verbal appeal and then no evidence. It's not a verbal appeal and then no transformation, no, no change the Lord says, follow me and keep following me. Now, that's not to say, follow me in perfection, in totality for forever. There are moments of, of, of sin that come and creep into our lives, but, but, but there's repentance, there's restoration that is there, available for the believer who knows these things. And you follow him on that broken path all the way to the end. So where are we at the end of this drama? We've learned that there's nothing too hard for the Lord. You and I can trust Him for everything. We've learned that the judgments of the Lord are slow, but they are terrible. We learned that The choices we make carry consequences, not only for ourselves, but also for our families. But best of all, we have learned that Abraham, the friend of God, who tried to save but could not save, was the forefather of Jesus, who came to save and does And there is no sin under the sun that you may have committed or even persistently committed from which the Lord Jesus cannot save you and of which God cannot pardon you. But you cannot find that salvation by looking to Abraham. You cannot find that salvation by looking to a mere man. You can only find it by looking to and trusting in Jesus Christ, the God-man. So let none of us think that it is a small thing how we think of Christ. And you know, after all of this destruction and everything that's terrible, even... even Over a great span of time, God still brought restoration. Because that name, Moab, which means uh, son of my grandfather, it would be through a Moabite in the book of Ruth, through the line of Ruth, in which the line of Jesus Christ would come. So God even takes the horribleness of the event that takes place here in chapter 19 and he redeems it and he uses it for his purposes. Let us pray. Father, we are eternally grateful for your word which has made promises that we read over and over that you keep It warns us, not falsely, but accurately, of what happens if we perpetually turn from you. But it gives us great hope in the same time of the picture of Christ going forward and that we can find our hope, our salvation, our very lives in Him. So let these terrible passages of Genesis 18 and 19 serve as a reminder to us in our hearts, in our daily walk of the truth of your judgment, of the truth of your mercy and grace. For We pray this in Christ's name.